0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, VEGF TRAP.
1: So now what you have is a soluble antibody-looking molecule, but instead of having it with the antibody-type sequence, you actually have the VEGF receptor sequence, which are very high affinity to VEGF itself. First this.
0: In order to provide medical education free of commercial bias, as seen from here requires a financial interest disclosure before any podcast program, Dr. Stewart declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. What do we want in an intravitreal anti-VEGF agent? Well, one thing we want is an agent that hangs around so that we don't have to stick the patient in the eye too often. We also want an agent that binds VEGF and binds it well. In clinical terms, we want an agent with a long half-life of pharmacologic activity and an agent with high binding affinity. These properties are not entirely independent and attempts have been made to design these desirable features into anti-VEGF agents. One of these new anti-VEGF agents is called VEGF trap. What is it? I asked Michael Stewart just that. Michael Stewart, welcome to A Scene From Here. Before we get started, we need to define some terms. What does half-life mean pharmacologically, and what does it mean clinically?
1: Well, from a pharmacological standpoint, we really talk about half-life of a drug, and we can talk about it generally in one of two ways. Uh, What it refers to is the time it takes for either the concentration of the drug in whatever solution of tissue we're interested in, decreases by one-half, or we can alternatively measure it as the biological activity of the drug in that same tissue or solution, the time it takes to decrease by one-half. For most drugs within the body, at least with drugs within the eye that we're concerned about, this is usually a first-order kinetics. So it's a first-order decay, and it's an exponential decay function. What that means clinically uh, it is the implication of what it does in terms of the longevity of treatment effect. A longer half-life will suggest a longer clinical effect because you spend more time above, if you will, the, medial, the, the minimal inhibitory concentration or the minimal clinical uh, effective concentration of the drug that's required to get the desired effect, be it treatment of macular degeneration, treatment of endostomitis, or any of the other um, conditions that we're treating within the eye.
0: One of the points that you make in the paper is that half-life, to some extent, is dependent upon the mass of the molecule. Do I
1: have that right? Uh, that, yes, that's correct. Generally speaking, the larger the molecule, the longer the half-life, meaning it's going to be, it's going to take a longer period of time for that molecule to diffuse out of the eye. In the paper that, that we wrote, we were really talking about uh, antibodies or antibody fragments, and so we're talking about long-chain uh, amino acid-based pro- proteins. Clearly, if you, do, if you deal with other molecules, such as steroids, it's going to have somewhat different parameters because of sol- solubility issues. But in terms of molecules or the related substances, larger means longer half-life.
0: We're going to be talking about anti-VEGF agents, but VEGF isn't just one molecule.
1: That's correct. In fact, the, 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 there are multiple VEGFs. Not only are there multiple molecules, but there are actually six different families of VGF molecules in humans, and they're conveniently labeled A, B, C, D, E, and the final one is the placental family of VGF molecules. From the standpoint of ophthalmic treatment, what we're concerned with is family A, and within family A, there are five major isoforms. Uh, Included in that is isoform 165, the one that we typically talk about in terms of uh, ophthalmic angiogenesis and hyperpermeability problems. Uh, and then there are at least three minor isoforms within family A as well.
0: Similarly, there's more than one VEGF receptor. What are they, and do they have different biological activities?
1: Yeah, there they are. They're, the receptors are labeled VEGF receptor 1, 2, and 3, and so typically in the literature you'll see VEGF R and then 1, 2, or 3, and there's also a related receptor called neuropilin. Um with respect to the VGF receptors themselves, uh, VGF receptor 3 is found only in lymphatic cells. And so from the standpoint of angiogenesis or, or hyperpermeability, that probably does not come into play for ophthalmic conditions. Uh, VGF receptor 1 has a controversial role, and nobody is quite sure uh, what its role is pertaining to ophthalmic disease. Some investigators think it may just be a decoy molecule for VGF. However, there is some uh, evidence to suggest that VGF receptor 1 is upregulated by um, hypoxia-inducible factor 1, uh, which suggests that it may have a role in macular degeneration, diabetes, or vein equations. Uh, p- most people would agree that the VGF receptor 2 is the molecule that probably is most important um, as stimulation of this uh, receptor actually causes an increase in vascular permeability, angiogenesis, and stimulates mitogenic changes.
0: Of the different agents that are available now, pegaptinib, bevacizumab, and ranibizumab, can I get you to describe their differences structurally and their differences biologically?
1: Yeah, and you Broken that down exactly right because structurally, first of all, uh, the is actually what's called a pegylated aptamer, and so it's really a single strand of nucleic acid, and it is configured to actually bind to um, to uh, VEGF. Uh, whereas bevacizumab and ranibizumab are are respectively nearing um, full full-scale antibodies to VGF, or affinity-enhanced antibody fragments in the case of renovizumab. Secondly, from the standpoint of function, uh, the was structured to be specific to VGF-165. And there was a lot of evidence uh, coming out of the laboratory that VGF-165 was found in fairly high concentration within coronary vascular membranes. And so the thought was 165 may well be the most important target molecule. And that's why Pigapton was structured the way it was. Whereas bevacizumab and map are pan-VGF uh, inhibitors. And so not only do they bind 165, but they will also bind the other isomers within the VGF-A family of molecules.
0: Michael, what is VEGF trap?
1: Well, the VEGF trap is what's termed a fusion molecule. And what the investigators did was they took a IgG antibody and cleaved off the binding areas. And so they're left with what's called the FC backbone. And then to the FC backbone, they, they uh, fused uh, portions of the VEGF-1 receptor and the VGF 2 receptors. And so now what you have is a soluble, antibody-looking molecule, but instead of having it with the antibody-type sequence, you actually have the VGF receptor sequence, which are very high affinity to VGF itself, hence, theoretically, a stronger binding affinity and perhaps more potency.
0: For those of us out of medical school for a while now, the IgG molecule is shaped like a Y, with the stem of the Y ending in the FC portion. And the arms of the Y having the FAB antigen binding sites. What VEGF trap is then is the FAB portions, the little uh, ends of the arms of the Y, removed. And in their place, um, a derivative of the VEGF receptor molecule has been sort of grafted on. Do I have that correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a great way of putting it, and I think the way to think about that conceptually is you've taken what might be bevacizumab, which is a full-scale anti-VGF antibody, and instead of having those naturally formed arms up top, as you will, that they've taken those away and put on much stronger binding proteins, namely the VGF receptor proteins
0: themselves. Now, the currency that we're going to be talking about here is VEGF binding activity. What does VEGF binding activity mean clinically, and how is this relevant to VEGF-TRAP?
1: Yeah, When we talk about binding activity, really we're talking about how strongly does the molecule in question that we're administering, be it the VEGF-TRAP or either Bevacizumab or how strongly does it form a bond to VEGF itself? Uh, And so high-binding activity means strong bond, and as you remember back to first-year college chemistry, you've always got an equilibrium between the reagents and the products, and a high-binding activity throws a reaction to the right strongly in favor of a single-bound product. So a high-binding activity uh, will refer to most of of the molecules in solution are in bound form. A low binding activity means you will have a lot of circulating VGF. Obviously from the standpoint of clinical therapy, we're going to be interested in trying to negate the VGF in solution or in tissue. And so high binding means very little VGF that is available to interact with the tissues and cause hyperpermeability and angiogenesis that we don't that we aren't looking for.
0: Now let me restate what you've said in a, a kind of a more simple minded way. If we have two petri dishes, let's say, with equal amounts of VEGF. And into the first Petri dish, we put an anti-VEGF agent with a low binding affinity, a relatively low one, like bevacizumab. And into the other Petri dish, we put an equal quantity, at at least from a molar standpoint, an equal quantity of an anti-VEGF agent with a high VEGF binding affinity, like VEGF trap. We would expect less free VEGF in the Petri dish with the agent with a higher binding affinity, even though the molar concentrations of the two agents in the two Petri dishes is the same.
1: Exactly, and and that's because the the reagent product equation... For the VGF trap is far more skewed to the right because of the higher binding affinity. Affinity. The result is less free-floating VGF within the VGF trap petri dish, and consequently less available VGF to interact with tissues.
0: Now, this study was a sort of a of a modeling study. Uh, let me get you to describe the exercise that was outlined in this study.
1: Yeah. Well, what we did was was try to make a prediction. Uh, based on known clinical data. And the known clinical data is some laboratory data with both the VGF trap and ranibizumab, and also clinical data from ranibizumab. Um, and the exercise was then trying to predict what, how long would we expect a VGF trap injection to be biologically active relative to ranibizumab when injected into the eye. Uh, based on known parameters, both uh, from the laboratory and from clinical studies with Uh We know from studies of uh that were done in the late 90s uh, that, that the binding affinity of randomismab to VGF suggested that a injection of randomizumab would probably last about 30 days, giving an acceptable clinical response, and from that, the, the, the MARINA and the, um, and the anchor studies were designed and based on injections every 30 days. And it found that, that on a 30-day interval, those were very effective dosings, dosing trials. Um, and so we, we then therefore say, well, we know what the binding affinity of randomizumab is, that's well known. We know what the individual half-life of randomizumab is because that's been studied uh, within rabbit study models by Sophie Backley in Rochester, and also similar models have been done out of um, monkey eyes using similar uh, protein fragments, and we know that it's about 3.2 days. Um, And so we then say, well, let's compare this to the VGF trap, because if we know that the VGF trap has a binding affinity about 140 times that of ranibizumab, Uh, then we know that on an equal molar basis, we've got about a 140 times clinical effectiveness rate. At least that would be our assumption. Furthermore, we can make a reasonable guess as to what the intravitreal half-life of VGF trap is within the human eye. And the way we do that uh, is based on knowing that it's going to be somewhere between that of randomizumab and bevacizumab. And the reason for that is randomizumab has a uh, molecular weight of about 48 kilodaltons. Deficism adds about 148. The VGF trap is in between at about 110. So we're averaging in the 4.5 or slightly higher range in terms of days of intravitreal half-life. And then furthermore, there was some unpublished data that came out of Regeneron, the company that is developing the V-drift trap, and they found that in a rabbit model, but the intravitreal half-life of the VGF trap was about 4.79 days. So it fits right about where one would expect based on what we know about granabizumab and bevacizumab. And so therefore, we would assume that if you inject the VGF trap within the eye, you're going to get it's going to decay in a, as a first order or an exponential decay process both in terms of its concentration and we assume its biological activity within the eye. Uh, because that's, what parallel, that's the parallel we draw between that and ranibizumab and bevacizumab. And so then by, by putting in the relative constants of binding affinity 140 times, and then making some, uh, some uh, changes based on calculation differentials on a molar basis, we can then create a first-order decay process where we're comparing the biological activity of the VGF trap we put into the eye to that of which we can graph by known parameters. And so it's, it's a first-order equ- first decay equation with a couple of constants taking into account um, the binding affinity and the concentration that we're using based on, on the available amount of EGF trap that we're injecting.
0: And what is it that the model would predict based upon the parameters that you outline here?
1: Yeah, And it depends on the dose, but for the VGF trap, there have currently been four different doses that have been studied, Um, 0.5 milligrams, 1 milligram, 2, and 4 milligrams, as you would expect. The higher the dose, the longer the half-life. And what our study suggested was that for the low dose, the 0.5 milligrams, a single dose of VGF trap would, at 73 days, have the same relative biological activity as a single dose of ranibizumab would at 30 days. And 30 days meaning that's probably in most people the longest we're gonna ex- at least expect or hope for a good long-lasting clinical result. So half milligram equals 73 days compared to 30 of ranibizumab. If you go up the chain up to the four milligram dose of the VGF trap, then that, actually, that number actually increases Uh, and it increases up to 87 days. So somewhere between 73 and 87 days would be the expected biological activity of a VEGF trap injection when compared to a ranibizumab injection, which would last 30 days.
0: Do we have any clinical VEGF trap
1: data? We have some. Uh, Like like, uh, Bevacizumab, much of the VEGF trap uh, development and, and investigation has been driven by oncology. Uh, and so the VGF trap actually has existed as a systemic form prior to its trials within the eye. Um, and interestingly, there was a study by Nguyen where they gave intravenous VGF trap uh, for age-related macular degeneration and found that it was fairly effective. In, in many ways, that was very similar Uh, to Rosenfeld's first foray into bevacizumab, given it intravenously for age-related macular degeneration. Well, that has since spawned uh, the development of the intraocular VGF trap, and currently there has been data that has come out of a Phase two trial, uh, which showed that the efficacy of the VGF trap given given intraocularly, uh, was fairly comparable to that that we've seen with ranibizumab. Now, granted, we didn't have a good control group uh, for comparison, and there was no ranibizumab for comparison, but in terms of number of of letters gained, it was fairly comparable to ranibizumab. Um, The other important point that came out of the data was that it easily the duration of injected easily lasted one month but began to taper off a little bit when it was extended towards three months. So the data suggests that one month easily, three months maybe not quite. Uh, to some extent, that fits with the model that we had projected, which says anywhere from 73 to 87 days, based on on the dosing. Uh, so through phase two, it's a promising-looking drug. Currently, there is a phase three study called the CLEAR 3 study, which is comparing three different uh, dosing regimens of the VDF trap with the the gold standard, which is ranibizumab, uh, and that's in its first year of trial, right? The first year of a two-year trial right now, but the results aren't expected to to be in probably for close to two years.
0: Now, I assume that at this point in the progress of this agent, that uh, this has had no impact on your clinical practice yet.
1: That's correct, and, and since it's still under FDA investigation, we, we have no no room at this point for treating either off label or outside the study. Uh, you know where this may come into play down the road is to try to extrapolate from the data that comes out of the Clear3 study. Is to say that if at a one month or two month dosing it looks very promising and we get no diminution of effect, then you know can we start to push the envelope and go up to seventy three to eighty five days. Uh, our study suggests that might be a reasonable thing to try if the Clearit study supports that.
0: As practitioners reading the literature as it comes out, what sorts of data, what sorts of studies should we be waiting for?
1: You know, in my mind, there are two major studies out there right now that I think are going to be very important in terms of defining what we do next uh with macular degeneration uh one is the clear 3 study um, because the vgf trap is probably one the most promising of the molecules that has at least reached phase 3 and two it's going to be probably the first of the molecules to actually go through a full phase 3 study and then if the data is appropriate to ultimately achieve fda um, uh sanctioning uh and uh for subsequent distribution. Uh, so the CLIRA 3 is, is one of those. Uh, the other study that, that is very interesting and I think it's important for us to look at, doesn't involve the VGF trap at all, but that is the CAT study, the CATT, um, Complications of Age-related Macular Degeneration Treatment Trial. And that's a head-to-head study of ranibizumab versus bevacizumab, uh, in which there are two different study groups for each drug uh, where patients are dosed monthly or monthly, followed by PRN as a direct head-to-head comparison. Uh, That's also in its first-year recruitment of a two-year trial, and so we're not probably expecting results from that for within two years. But I think these are the two major studies that we can be looking forward to uh, seeing data from within the next three years or so.
0: Michael Stewart, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: Michael Stewart is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the Mayo Clinic and chair of the Department of Ophthalmology in the Jacksonville, Florida, campus. His paper, Predicted Biological Activity of Intravitreal VEGF Trap, appears in the May 2008 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Stewart or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646 808 in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275, or Skype JYoungMD. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.